In Scripture, we see situations where God will create trials for His people, difficulties, and this in order to humble them, to teach them, and ultimately, in the end, to bless them. My name is Stephen Cook, and welcome to Thinking on Scripture. And in today's lesson, I want to consider Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. The book of Deuteronomy was, was written by Moses, and it was his farewell address to the nation of Israel. He's 120 years of age, he is within a few weeks of dying, and he is uh, equipping. Uh, the second generation of Israelites with everything that they need for a life of success if they will follow his directives. Moses' ministry began uh, 40 years earlier when he was called by the Lord in Exodus chapters 2 and 3 to go and to deliver God's people Israel from Egyptian captivity. Moses uh, agreed and was used by the Lord to liberate the Israelites from Egypt. However, uh, though many Israelites, millions, uh, followed him out of Egypt, and this under the Lord's um, supernatural provision and direction, once the Israelites found themselves in the wilderness, they quickly fell apart. And, and what happened there is they uh, failed to live by faith. They had the Word of God, they had the promises of God, but it did not benefit them because it was not united uh, by faith in those who heard. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is getting at. He says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. They refers to that Exodus generation, that first generation who came out of Egypt Uh, into the wilderness. And it's, he goes on and he says, but the word they heard did not profit them. Why? It did not profit them. Why? He says, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So that was the breakdown. That was the failure on their part. And what happened was, was because they complained and complained and complained and complained against Moses and poor Moses, uh, he got frustrated and he brought his complaints to the Lord. And uh, my heart breaks for Moses for all he had to deal with with these complaining people. But within a short period of time, God finally disciplined that whole generation. And he told them that they would not inherit the land of Canaan. They would not be allowed to go into the land. Now, these were believers. They came out of Egypt. They were, in fact, God's people. But because they failed to live by faith, they forfeited the inheritance of the land. And the judgment that came upon that generation was that everybody who was 20 years of age and older would not go into the land. They would not go into the land. They would wander around in the wilderness in a, in a region of land known as Kadesh Barnea, uh, a wilderness, and they would wander around for 40 years until eventually that generation would die off. And so they would not inherit the land. Now, everybody who was under the age of 20 and those who were born in the wilderness during the 40 years, they would go into the land of Canaan. Again, everybody who was under 20 
and those who were born during the 40-year wilderness wanderings, that generation would then go into the land of Canaan. And they would go in under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua was going to be the one who was going to bring them into the land. Well, everything that Moses had communicated to the Israelites in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, that is the giving of the Mosaic Law, was restated in summary form in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was written to the second generation of Israelites. Again, those who were going to go into the land under the leadership of Joshua. And the uh, first generation came out of Egypt around 1446-1445 BC. And so when Moses uh, gives the book of Deuteronomy, we're talking about 1405 BC. 1406-1405 BC. And again, he's 120 years of age. He is within a few weeks of dying, so this is his farewell address to that generation. And what he is giving them is everything they need, again, for a life of success, if they will succeed in uh, obeying the Lord's directives, if they will live by faith, unlike their parents and grandparents who failed miserably, failed miserably in the wilderness. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses speaks to the, uh, again, to the second generation. And in that section, we observe where God humbled his people. That is the Exodus generation, that that first generation that came out. Where God humbled his people, um, Israel, in order to teach them divine truths and to help them advance to maturity. Now, the challenge before them was to walk by faith. That was the issue, and that is always the issue. That is always the issue for us as believers. Once we enter into a relationship with God, and as Christians, we enter into a relationship with God at the moment of faith in Christ, believing that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and raised again on the third day. And at the moment that we turn to Christ and trust in Him as Savior and trust in Him alone, not in ourselves or any system of works, when we trust in Christ and Christ alone, we are forgiven all of our sins, we are given eternal life and the gift of righteousness, and we are brought into the family of God. The issue for us at that moment is to grow up, is to advance to spiritual maturity. And this requires time as we learn God's Word and we live God's Word. And God will, uh, God will give us difficulties in life, and these become opportunities to grow. They become vehicles, as it were, to help us in our spiritual growth. Well, this is no different than the uh, wilderness generation. And so the challenge before them was to walk by faith obeying the Lord's directives, and trusting His promises more than their difficult circumstances. So Moses opens this pericope, and a pericope is a paragraph. It is a unit of thought. And so Moses opens this pericope with the statement in Deuteronomy 8.1. He says, All the commandments that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do. Let me pause for just a second there. When he's talking about all the commandments, he's talking about the summary that he is giving in the book of Deuteronomy, which is a summary uh, statement of uh, of of the Mosaic Law, and he's giving them what they need. He's giving them the Lord's directives. 
So he says, all the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do. Uh, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And so he's talking about going in and possessing the land as the inheritance. Now God desired to bless and multiply his people by giving them the land that he had promised to the patriarchs. But according to the Mosaic covenant or contract, the inheritance was conditioned on their obedience to him. It was conditioned on their obedience to him. And Moses used the Hebrew word mitzvah, which is the word that is translated commandments. We might also translate it directives. Uh, Moses used the Hebrew word mitzvah, which here referred to the whole corpus of laws that he was providing. Now, Moses' instruction included remembering their past and God's testing them during the 40 years during the 40 years of wilderness wandering Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2 he said you shall remember you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years now for those who were let me pause for a moment for those who were under the age of 20 they would remember the exodus event itself they would remember, many would remember, except for those who were infants, you know, toddlers, uh, many would remember the Exodus event itself because they would have been young teenagers. And so they would have remembered Moses' leadership. They would have remembered the 10 plagues. They would have seen it firsthand experience. So when he says remember, he's, uh, he's speaking uh, to those who would have come out of, of Egypt, who would have had firsthand experience, but he would have also been speaking to those who were born in the wilderness who had heard about the Exodus event and who had it in their mind. And therefore, he's recalling it to their remembrance. And so he says, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. And notice what he says next, that he might humble you, that he might humble you testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And God's testing here was not for his knowledge. It was for their knowledge, and it was, for, it was to reveal, in fact, what was in their hearts. So again, he says the purpose of his leading them in the wilderness for 40 years was that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, Moses used the Hebrew verb zakar, zakar, which is the word that's translated remember. We see this word appearing in like the name of Zechariah, the prophet, Zechariah, which anytime you see that yah at the end, that's Yahweh. And so like we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, well, Zechariah means Yahweh remembers, the Lord remembers. But the but the verb here, zakar, is translated remember. And Moses uses this word several times, several times in his address to the nation. In Deuteronomy 5.15, he says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. In Deuteronomy 7.18, he says, You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember 
what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Deuteronomy 8.18, But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Deuteronomy 15.15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore I command you this day. Deuteronomy 16.12, You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Deuteronomy 24.18, You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore I am commanding you to do this thing. Verse 22, You shall well remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I am commanding you to do this thing. Moses is a good teacher uh, in that he uh, repeats himself because that's what a good teacher does. A good teacher repeats. And he reminds them multiple times that they were slaves in Egypt and that it was God who brought them out and that it was God who had given them the power uh, to make wealth and to be prosperous, that this comes from the hand of the Lord. As a side note, I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul, in his writings in the New Testament, five times, five times, uh, referenced his former life as a persecutor of the church. That that was a that that was a a, a point in his life that he uh, that he brought up that I'm sure he felt very very bad about as one who persecuted Christians. But it was one of those things where some things you do want to remember about your past. There are things about my past that I remember and I bring up in my Bible lessons because it was a turning point for me, a transition from a life of worldliness into a life of walking with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But again, getting back to the notes here, he tells them to remember. He tells them to remember. In this case... He says, you shall well remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness. So he's getting them to think back to the 40 years. Now, at the time that Moses is writing the book of Deuteronomy, that generation, that first generation has died off. They have died off. And so here he's giving that second generation what they need to go into the land. But he tells them, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Again, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, the Israelites were to intentionally recall to mind God's 40 years of guidance in the wilderness uh, for the purpose of humbling them, to test them in order to reveal what was in their hearts. Now, remembering God, uh, his commands and blessings, is set against the danger of forgetting, uh, which will lead to ruin. And we see the, uh, the flip side of this, where Moses, on several times, he says, "...only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life." Verse 23, so watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. Deuteronomy 6.12, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out uh, from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Deuteronomy 8.11, beware that you do not forget 
the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Remembering and forgetting are like two sides of the same coin. If you actively engage in remembering, and this is a discipline of the mind, and much of the walk of the believer is a discipline of the mind. It is a discipline of the mind in which we um, take the time to learn God's Word and then to intentionally keep it in the forefront of our thinking and to apply it to everyday life. 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul says that we are bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, that we are bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And so this remembering and not forgetting gets back to that issue about the discipline of the mind. And it is so important because it's in our thoughts that uh, that we have a perspective on life, on reality, on the world, on ourselves, and we operate by divine viewpoint, and we can then live by faith. And as we live by faith, that speaks to our words, it speaks to our actions, and how we treat people, and so on. Getting back to the notes here, how did God train His people? How did He train His people? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, this is where it gets fascinating to me. Moses said in Deuteronomy 8, 3, that He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So he humbled you and let you be hungry. Does God do that with his people? Yes, he does. He humbled you and let you be hungry. And he fed you with manna. And manna was food from heaven. It was a divine provision. And you must remember, you have to go back in time. You have to put yourself in this region of the world. This is a wilderness situation. It's a, it's a wilderness called Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is the region. And by the way, if you look at the distance from Egypt to the land of Canaan, it was roughly about an 11-day journey. It was roughly about an 11-day journey. And yet, uh, because they were under divine discipline, because that first generation had failed, they wandered around in that little plot of wilderness for 40 years until eventually that first generation that was 20 and older died off, until they died off. Um, but here it says that God humbled them and let you be hungry. So when they're in this region of the wilderness, there's no, uh, there's no crops. Uh, there's no place for them to grow a produce. There's no superstores where they can run down and buy what they need. There's no highways where they can ship in products to them. Uh, and we're talking about 2 million plus people out here in the wilderness. Well, if they're going to survive, they're going to need food. They're going to need water. And God provides that for them. He provides for them water to drink, not only for them, but for their herds. And God provides food to eat, manna. And so the Israelites would wake up in the morning and the manna would be on the ground and they could collect it. And it was provided for them six days a week. On Friday, they got a double portion because they were not to work on Saturday on the Sabbath. And so the Lord gave them a double portion to get them through uh, the Sabbath. But when they saw manna, they didn't know what it was. And so they said, Manhu, what is it? 
and, uh, and that became its name. And so manna means, what is it? Uh, and so that became its name. But the Lord provided for them. Now, this is called logistical grace, logistical grace, uh, because God gave them water to drink. He gave them food to eat. In fact, their clothes didn't wear out. And God, by the way, was uh, present with them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He was visibly present with them. This would have comforted them. This would have encouraged them, I think. If you were an Israelite and you were uh, feeding your herds or your flocks or you were out walking in the wilderness one day, and let's say you had a, a moment of anxiety where you were stressed out about the pressures of life, which can happen even to godly people, uh, you're having a moment of anxiety and you're wondering about the future and maybe you know thinking poorly of yourself or something, well, you could look off in the distance and you could see the pillar of cloud by day. And that was a, a reminder to you that God is with you that he's guiding you, that he's leading you along the way. And what a, what a beautiful picture. And if you were a child, um, a young boy or young girl, and you had a bad dream, at, and you woke up in the middle of the night, well, you could open the flap of your tent, and you could look off in the distance, and there was the pillar of fire by night. And how comforting that would have been, because that would have been a reminder to you that God is with you that he's there, that he's leading you along the way, and he's providing for you. Again, God was very, very gracious to them. And even though they were under divine discipline, even though they were not going to go into the land, God did not fail to provide for them. And I think sometimes of the analogy, or the comparison, excuse me, even when I was a child uh, and came under divine discipline, divine discipline, when I came under parental discipline, uh, there were times where I was grounded to my room. But even if I was grounded to my room for a couple days, my parents still fed me. I still had a roof over my head. Uh, I still had water to drink and food to eat and a bed to sleep on and, and so on. So, so the provision of the basic needs of life did not go away. Well, here, uh, God is disciplining his people, and they are his people, and you must keep that in mind. So he's disciplining them. But he's also providing for them because he loves for them and because God is good and God is gracious and God is kind that way. And so uh, I refer to this as logistical grace. Uh, logistics has to do with uh, the provision and the distribution of that provision for everyday needs in life. I have a friend who years ago was in the military and <clears throat> he would talk about uh, logistical provisions and would refer to it as beans and bullets. Uh, the things that he needed provided for him on a daily basis uh, so that he could do his job. Well, here we have God uh, providing for them. Now, he's humbling them, and he let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, and this in order to educate them. You see, these sorts of trials are didactic. These sorts of trials are didactic. They are educational. They have educational value to them. And they do to us as well, if we will learn from them. If we will learn from them. So, he says that he might uh, make you understand uh, what? What was it that he wanted them to understand? That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, spiritual nourishment is, in fact, more valuable than physical nourishment. And Jack Deere, uh, in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, 
has a really good note on this. He says, In the desert, they could not produce their own food, but had to depend on God for food, and thus for their very lives. When Moses reminded them that they did not live on bread alone, he meant that he meant that even their food was decreed by the word of God. They had manna because it came by his command. It was therefore ultimately not bread that kept them alive, but his word. And he's absolutely correct. And quoting from Dr. Thomas Constable, he says, God humbled the Israelites in the sense that he sought to teach them to have a realistic awareness of their dependence on himself for all their needs. This is true humility. He goes on, he says, God's provision of manna to eat and clothing to wear should have taught the people that they were dependent on his provision for all their needs, not just food and clothing. And he's correct on that. Now, God intentionally placed his people in difficult, in difficult places in order to reveal what was in their hearts and to educate them that he is their provider. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus himself cited Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, when being tested by Satan, and this in order to demonstrate that spiritual nourishment, again, is more important than physical nourishment. And you can see that in Matthew 4, 4 and Luke chapter 4, verse 4. Now, part of God's instruction included displays of his logistical grace. As Moses revealed in Deuteronomy 8.4, Moses said, Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Now, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because their clothes didn't wear out. Now, I have to go to the store and I have to buy shirts and, and socks and shoes and pants and whatnot and jackets and hats. And I need to buy uh, clothes, every, clothes every once in a while because mine wear out. But here, again, we see God's logistical grace, his logistical grace. And so he says, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. So God supernaturally provided for his people, meeting all of their basic needs. And the point was that they were to learn something. It was revealed to them in verse 5, Deuteronomy 8, 5, Moses says, Thus you are to know in your heart, that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. And that's Deuteronomy 8.5. So they were to know something. Again, this gets back to how we think. How we think. He says, thus you are to know. To know in your heart. Heart is lave. L-E-B, but the bait lacks the doggish, so it's a softer sound. It's like lave. But the lave, the heart, is the inner person. But most notably, it speaks of the mind. It speaks of, 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 of how we think. So he says, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. You see, God wanted his people to mature. And he used suffering as a vehicle to help make that happen. Now listen, suffering and trials by themselves do not guarantee uh, that a person will grow to maturity. Uh, the person must respond positively to the Lord and must, uh, must walk by faith. And this is where we see where the Israelites had failed. 
where the Israelites had failed. Because remember back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, that even though they had the promises of God, it did not benefit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So having a difficulty in a trial can make you bitter or it can make you better, depending upon how you respond, depending upon how you respond. So God wanted his people to mature and he used suffering as a vehicle to help make that happen. Warren Wearsby writes, he says, Discipline is child training, the preparation of the child for responsible adulthood. A judge justly punishes a convicted criminal in order to protect society and to uphold the law. But a father lovingly disciplines a child to help that child mature. He goes on, he says, Discipline is an evidence of God's love and of our membership in his family. When you think of the Lord's discipline of his children, don't envision an angry parent punishing a child. Rather, see a loving father challenging his children to exercise their muscles, physical and mental, so they will mature and be able to live like dependable adults. He goes on, he says, when we're being disciplined, the secret of growth is to humble ourselves and to submit to God's will. To resist God's chastening is to harden our hearts and resist the Father's will. Like an athlete in training, we must exercise ourselves and use each trial as an opportunity for growth. And I agree with him. He is, he is correct on this matter. <clears throat> so obedience leads to maturity, and maturity opens up many of God's blessings. I am convinced that there are some things that God wants to give to us as his children, but he conditions it on our reaching a level of maturity before we receive it. And this is because the very practical truth that if you give a child what a child wants, sometimes the very thing that they want may be the thing that will uh, cause them harm if they get it. For example, I, many years ago, many years ago, back in the mid-80s, I had a friend who, when she was about eight or nine, uh, her father began to restore a Mustang for her. I think it was a 65 or 66 Mustang. It was beautiful. And he finished it early, and it was ready for her. But she had to wait a few years. She had to wait until she was 16 before she could legally take possession of it. But more than uh, waiting until her legal age, she also had to demonstrate a level of maturity. She had to demonstrate to her father uh, that she could follow his directives, that she would be responsible with the things that he had given to her up to that point, and that she demonstrate maturity by caring for these things and by not misusing them. Because giving a car to a child, even though the child may want it, would be irresponsible because the very thing that the child may want could cause them harm if they had it because they don't they don't understand how to care for it how to how to operate it and so on and i think that's true for a lot of things in life i think there are some things that god wants to bless us with and it could be uh, material wealth it could be relational wealth it could be academic wealth it could be social wealth it could be a number of ways that god could bless us but we have to grow up we have to grow up. We have to reach a place of maturity before we receive that. 
And so um, getting back to the notes here, I think that obedience leads to maturity, and maturity opens up many of God's blessings. And so for us as a Christian, this is uh, encouraging to me because uh, it encourages me to want to walk with the Lord, to learn His Word, to live His Word, that I might advance in my walk with Him uh, because I know that my God is good and that there are times where He will bless me. Uh, I just have to reach the place of maturity before I can lay hold of that or before He'll give that to me. So for Israel to receive what God had for them, they were to follow his commands and walk with him. And they were instructed in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6. He says, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. See, that's the issue there. So God was to be feared as the one who holds the power to bless and to punish. And Moses describes the good land that was before them, saying... And here I'm going to read Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 and 9, or 7 through 9. He says, For the Lord your God, uh, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. What a beautiful picture, isn't that? Beautiful picture. Now, the land of Canaan was rich with resources which stood in contrast to their wilderness experience. Let me also say that the land of Canaan was filled with evil and wicked people, and uh, they were to go in and to expunge the land, uh, remove these people from the land, and to execute uh, what was called the Harim, or the Holy War against the uh, Canaanites. And, uh, and that was a one-time event in all of history. It was never repeated again or commanded again. But, uh, but nonetheless, there was a danger. And if they were to go in and to mingle and become friends with the Canaanites, then it would result in their destruction because it meant that they would learn their pagan values, which they did, unfortunately. And this carried down with them through the years where they practiced many, many evil, wicked things that they had learned from the Canaanites. That's another subject for another day. But the land of Canaan was rich with resources which stood in contrast to their wilderness experience. And the proper response to God's goodness was for his people to bless him, that is, to worship him, to praise him. The words given to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10, was, When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Now, an attitude of gratitude was not only the proper response to God's goodness, but it also helped the Israelites remember the Lord as an expression of faith. Now, as Christians... And, and that covers that section in Deuteronomy there. So let me transition over to the Christian today and draw some parallel uh, for us. As Christians, we are God's children. We are God's children because we have trusted in Christ as our Savior. Of course, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have, but have eternal life. And Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15.3 and 4, 
where Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then that he appeared to many. So the gospel message is that Christ died for us, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day, all according to the Scriptures. And so when we turn to Christ as Savior, coming with the empty hands of faith, trusting in Him and Him alone, at that moment we have forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7. We have eternal life, John 10.28. We have the gift of righteousness, Romans 5.17 and Philippians 3.9. We have spiritual gifts. We have opportunity. We have many blessings. Uh, And so not only uh, do we become Christians, but at that moment, at the moment of faith in Christ, we are rescued from Satan's domain of Satan's kingdom of darkness. In fact, that's what 1 Corinthians, excuse me, Colossians 1.13 tells us. It says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, as God's children, see, at that moment, we are like the Exodus generation that came out of Egypt. We are God's children. We have trusted in the Lord. And so we are like that uh, Exodus generation. But once we're out, once we're into phase two of the walk with the Lord of our Christian life, uh, the objective for for us then is to mature. It is for us to live by faith. It is to learn God's word and to advance to spiritual maturity. And this is why, like in Hebrews 6, 1, the writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Let us press on to maturity. And this requires years of learning and living God's Word. Years of learning and living God's Word. 2 Timothy 2.15 instructs us to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of Truth. And of course, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable to us for teaching, because we need to be taught. We need to be taught about who God is, the origin of the universe, why things exist, why we exist, why evil exists, and to give us insight into things that we cannot know by our natural experience, things pertaining to the heavenly realm, the existence of angels and fallen angels and Satan and demons and evil spirits and wicked spirits and this world system that we are told in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, that is the world system, Satan's philosophies and values. Um which can are antithetical to God and can lead us away from God. But the Word of God teaches us these things. And again, it gives us insights into realities that we could never know, except that God has revealed these things and, and the revelation has been inscripturated. It has been written down for our benefit. So all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof to show us where we're wrong and to correct us for correction into what is right and for training in righteousness. You cannot live a righteous life apart from learning God's Word. And it's that simple truth that we cannot live what we do not know. And learning God's Word necessarily precedes living God's will. To what end? that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, equipped for every good work. And of course, 1 Peter 2, 2 tells us, like newborn babes, as new believers, long for the pure milk of the word, 
so that by it, by it, you may grow in respect to your salvation. It is only by the intake of the Word of God, by the acquisition of God's Word and the application of God's Word that we grow, because it's always that two-step process, isn't it? It's by the acquisition, by the learning, and that can be from reading the Word of God for ourselves. It can also mean taking advantage of those gifted persons that God has given to the church who have the gift of teaching. Uh, And this can be pastors. All pastors are teachers. And then you have those that are teachers that are listed just as a spiritual gift by itself. And that is my gift. I didn't ask for it. I didn't earn it. It was given to me at salvation. And once I came to realize what my gift was, I then began to pursue an education which the Lord provided for me. And so I wanted to learn as much as I could about the original languages, about history, about theology, uh, things pertaining to philosophy. And I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly growing in these areas because I want to grow and to be equipped and to be able to communicate those truths. And God has provided platforms for me, whether that is through video channels or through a podcast or through my books or through my um, uh, articles that I write for my blog or through the prison ministry I've been involved with for upwards of 15 years now, or churches where I will go and teach, um, and you know various platforms. God opens doors for me to communicate, and so I'm very, very thankful for that. But the reality is, is that we cannot grow apart from the intake of the Word of God. So you can you can read the Word for yourself, and you can benefit from uh, teachers who accurately communicate the Word of God in a very clear and concise manner. Uh, and this becomes an opportunity for you to acquire the truth of God's Word. And so that's what I'm talking about with regard to the acquisition of divine viewpoint. But acquiring it is no guarantee that you will live by it. And that's why James 1.22 says, But be ye doers of the word, and not merely hearers only, who delude themselves. And so we have to not only discipline ourselves to study, but we have to discipline ourselves to think the word of God, and to speak the word of God to others, to share the gospel, and to do this in a loving, in a very gracious way for those who are willing to hear, and to live by faith and to walk out, to walk the Christian life. So it is learning the Word and then making good choices to live by faith. And that's why Hebrews 10.38, God says, But my righteous one shall live by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. And of course, Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And the Lord also uses adversity as opportunities for us to trust Him and to grow. He uses adversity as opportunities for us to trust Him and to grow. And I remember years ago, and I've shared this story before, but uh, when I was starting into college for the very first time, I took about uh, 30 hours of core courses at a community college uh, up in, um, in Lubbock, Texas. And I had a professor, uh, he taught, I don't remember his name, I remember he was a retired uh, lieutenant colonel, and uh, that he taught business communication, and I had to have a communication course, and so that was available, so I took it. And he was a good teacher, he was a very good teacher, and I benefited from his, uh, from his lessons greatly. But he warned us at the beginning of, uh, the, of the course, of the, of the session, 
that we were going to have pop quizzes, which meant that they were just, he was just going to spring them on us. And I remember a few weeks had gone by and uh, I'd walked into class and once all the class assembled and, you know, the time for class to begin, he says, all right, everybody, put your books away, take out a blank piece of paper. It's time. It's, it's, how did he frame it? He said, it's an opportunity to shine. And of course, everybody collectively, you know, gives us groan like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Oh, gee, I hope I do well. You know, and, and, but, but, but you felt that. People put their books away and their bags under their desk and got out a piece of paper, took the test. Well, a few weeks later, he did the same thing. He said, all right, everybody, you know, put your books away, put your bags away, get out a blank piece of paper and a pen. This is your opportunity to grow. And he used that language uh, time and time again. Uh, you know, and, and, and at first when I heard it, I, I thought, well, that, that's kind of an odd way to frame that, isn't it? But afterwards, I thought, I thought, wow, he's he's really correct in that, you know, because what do you do with a pop quiz and, and take life? I mean, life sends all sorts of, God sends all sorts of pop quizzes our way, you know, those those tests and trials that come our way. And how do you view it? Is it, not, is it an opportunity to complain or is it an opportunity to shine? Is it an opportunity to grow? Uh, because how you frame it determines how you respond to it. And I think that as believers, this I think it very much communicates a biblical idea. I think of in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, but Paul talking about tribulation says not only this, but we also exult in tribulations. We exult in tribulations. Think of that. To view tribulations as an opportunity to exult. And uh, and Why? Because he says, knowing, knowing. And it's because we know something. We know that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character hope. You see, God is more concerned with our Christian character than he is with our creaturely comforts. He's more concerned with our Christian character than he is with our creaturely comforts. And he wants us to grow up, and he uses the trials of life to humble us, to teach us, and to help us to advance to maturity, to burn away the dross of weak character, and to refine <clears throat> and to refine the golden qualities that God wants to see in us. And the challenge for us, the challenge for us is to respond in faith, to frame it from the divine perspective, and to respond by faith and not feelings. This is why in James 1, 2 through 4, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when, not if, when you encounter various trials. Various trials. Poikilois pe rosmos. And this means that trials come in a variety of sizes and shapes and colors. But when we encounter various trials, we are to count it all joy. Again, knowing Knowing, because we know something. And here, knowing, gnosko, is a causal participle, and so we could translate it, because you know. Because you know what? That the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And the word perfect there translates the Greek adjective teleos. Teleos. And it's a word that might better be rendered mature, mature. 
uh, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. By the way, counting it all joy, that's not an emotional response. That is a mental attitude. And I would connect the word joy with the word knowing. Because it doesn't have to do with our circumstances or even our feelings. We count it all joy because we know something. We know that God has taken us to the gym. We know that He's taken us for a workout. And He's taken us to the place of difficulty to humble us, to teach us, to, in the end, ultimately bless us. Paul even understood this when he had his thorn in the flesh in Romans 12, verses 7-10. through 10. And he prayed to the Lord three times to take it away. And that's fine. It's fine for us to pray to God to remove some difficulty in our life. But we must live in the reality that what God does not remove, He intends for us to deal with. What God does not remove, He intends for us to deal with. And this by faith. And Paul did respond in faith. And so, God told him, he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And so, Paul didn't like the thorn in the flesh, but he understood, and he stated it twice, that it was given to him to keep him from exalting himself. We might say that differently. We might say that it was given to Paul to humble him. To humble him. And God basically told Paul, I'm not going to take away the thorn in the flesh because it keeps you close to me. Because it keeps you walking with me. It keeps you looking to me. And I know you don't like the thorn, Paul, but it's what keeps you humble, and it's what keeps you close to me, and it's what keeps you effective uh, in your ministry. And so Paul, when he came to understand that, embraced the thorn in the flesh. He welcomed it, even. And he said, I will even boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And that's a response from a mature believer, by the way. That is a faith response. So, in closing, how we respond to trials, how we respond to trials determines whether we advance, stagnate, or regress. And as Christians, let us always press on to maturity by learning and living God's Word, by learning it and by living it, and by walking by faith. Thank you very much. I hope this lesson has been helpful to you, and I wish you a blessed day.